0: Welcome to the Salem Alliance Church podcast. To learn more about Salem Alliance, including house churches, gathering times, and other resources, visit us online at salemalliance.org. Today's talk is given by Brian Candelo. Good morning, church. Good morning, house church live stream. So glad you could join us in this way. My name is Brian, and I oversee um, diapers to diplomas and beyond in this place. And many of you this past week actually received a call, probably from someone in our student ministry. And I just wanted to thank you so much for your generosity. Yesterday we had students throughout the city serving the city because you guys have donated to them. So thank you for doing that. And if you didn't get a call and you still want to donate to student ministry, we would gladly receive that. You can go online and uh, go to the high school page, middle school page, and figure that out as well. So, have you ever sat in church and just had your mind wander? (laughs) You're not not supposed to laugh. You're supposed to be like, no, (laughs) especially not during the sermon. We would never do that. When that happens to me, honestly, it usually wanders towards what I'm going to eat after the service. What it is that I'm hungry for. Lunchtime right now, I mean, we could have burger and fries, oh, so good, or we could have pizza or pasta or steak or tacos, mm. or maybe some fresh baked bread. And then, of course, there's dessert, and dessert's not an or, it's an and. We, we combine these things, ice cream and cookies and chocolate and whatever it else there is. Did I lose you? Are you hungry? I want to bring you back. We want to talk about this a little bit. I know our cravings for food sometimes come out at different times and our cravings are difficult to overcome because we live in a world of instant gratification and we can get what we want when we want it delivered to our door at our convenience, at our convenience stores. And there's been a lot of research done on the subject of food cravings. And a lot of people think that food cravings that we have are because of nutritional deficiencies. It's our bodies responding to a need. So if we have a salt craving, it's our body responding to a need of dehydration. If we have a sweet craving, it's our body responding to a need of low blood sugar. But recently, there's been a bunch of studies that link our food cravings to something that is deeper, something that's more emotional, something that is more psychological rather than biological. So, if we have a sweet craving, they're saying that maybe sweets were a reward for us growing up, and so we crave them because we need this sense of accomplishment or recognition in our lives. Or maybe we crave fatty foods because they've been a stabilizing factor for us in our stressful, frenetic lives when we feel like we're being pulled in a million different directions. It's something that keeps us grounded. And obviously, there's a whole bunch of theories about this. But with all of these theories about food cravings, we do know one thing for sure. Food never truly satisfies the deep cravings and longings we have on the inside. We, we can't eat our way to wholeness as much fun as it is to try because these longings continue to come back the same way that our appetites come back. And we know we use food and we use a whole bunch of other really surface things to try and deal with the real deep longings that we have inside. So how do we satisfy then those deeper cravings, the real things, purpose, acceptance, value, relationship? Direction, understanding, safety, joy. Do these things always have to stay out of reach or can we actually get to the root of what these cravings, these longings are? We're kicking off a new series. We're calling it Crave and we're looking at the seven I Am statements of Jesus found in the book of John. These seven statements are incredibly important because they are the answer to our deepest questions. They're actually the answer to our deepest longings. They tell us who God is and what he does for us. This series really could be called Jesus According to Jesus. Because in these I Am statements, Jesus is telling us who he is and who he is meets the deepest longings of our heart. And as we launch into this series, we want to focus on Jesus. Our longings are going to be a part of it, but it's not about our longings, and it's all about Jesus. So today we're going to look at an I Am statement that speaks to our longing for more, in particular more life, both in span and significance, in duration and distinction. John chapter 11 gives us this statement. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. In this statement, Jesus offers us life after death and life before death. You see, we'll have breath after death, but we can also have purpose and power in the present. And that's what we want to talk about. This I Am statement is found in John chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Jesus is out doing ministry with his disciples and he receives word that Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, is very sick and is dying. And Jesus is about a day's journey away from where they live, but he stays an additional two days where he is before heading back to them. And his disciples remind him, Jesus, hey, just a few days ago, The people in that region wanted to stone you. They tried to stone you. Are you sure it's a good idea to go back there? And Jesus is like, let's go. And actually, one of his disciples, the one with a very negative nickname, Doubting Thomas, it says, he said, let's go to and die with Jesus. And I just love that. And may we remember Thomas in that way as well. And and we're really not talking about Thomas today. That's just a little bonus material for you there. But we're gonna pick up the story in verse 17. It says, when Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in the grave for four days. So if you do the math on that, if he was a day's journey away, if he stayed two days, a day's journey back for the messenger to get there, Lazarus probably passed en route with the messenger. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Mary got word that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Now, here's the thing. Jesus tells Martha, hey, Lazarus is going to rise and she takes it to mean not this day, but the last day. So she kind of assents to this intellectually and likely not with much enthusiasm because present sorrow always seems to dim future joy. And this is where Jesus then gives this I am statement I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? And she says, yes, Lord. And then Martha goes back and get, gets Mary. And Mary comes and has a very similar encounter to the one that Martha had. And then I want to pick up in verse 33, and I want us to pay attention to the two emotions that are used to describe Jesus' response to this situation, because they're unusually intense. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him, he asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him? But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. Did you see those two emotions? In verse 35, it says, Jesus wept. Probably a verse you have memorized. He entered into the sorrow of the men and women. And a lot of people wonder why Jesus wept in this moment. Because he knew what he was going to do. Spoiler alert, Lazarus is alive at the end of the story. Jesus knew what he was going to do. So do sad people just make Jesus sad? Or did he weep for Lazarus because he was calling Lazarus back from paradise? And Lazarus is going to be like, what did you do? I was there. I made it. But think about that. Think about your experiences at a grave or a funeral and the sorrow that's there. But also, it says that he was angry. Verse 33, literally translated means to quake with rage. Verse 38 literally, literally means to snort like a bull. Jesus came to the tomb furious, furious. I don't know if we ever see that, but there's anger in his sorrow. And Jesus isn't angry at the family. He's not angry with Martha and Mary, like, pull it together, guys. Come on. Jesus isn't angry with himself either. He's not thinking, if only I had been here just a few days earlier, all of this could be different. Jesus is angry at death. Our enemy Jesus wept and was angry because of what death does to his creation, the separation that it causes, the destruction that it unleashes, and we need to pay attention to the things that cause these emotions to rise up in Jesus, both tears and anger. He was saying, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And so Jesus is going after what 1 Corinthians 15 calls the last enemy to be destroyed, death, because he is The resurrection and the life. And so let's let's pause for a minute. Let's pause where we left off the story, right there at the tomb. And so let's enter in and and see that the stone has been rolled aside and Lazarus is inside. And, And probably we have had an experience at a funeral. We've had an experience where we've stood in a graveyard or had a graveside service. And we know what rises up in us because here's the thing a grave awaits each one of us. I know, happy news, right? You're thinking, last week we celebrated and got cake. This week the guy's talking about death. But death is a reality. You see, because of sin, because of the fall, we're dead, not just a death, we're dead now. There's a separation that happens. And so we can refuse to face death. We can ignore it and try not to talk about it, but it's still coming for us. Or we can sentimentalize death. We can pretend like death is just a good friend waiting for us at the end of our lives. But that's not what Jesus did. Death is an enemy. And so as we stand here with everyone looking at this tomb with the stone rolled aside, we can kind of feel what it feels like to be at this grave. And when we are at a funeral, there's a tremendous amount of soul searching that happens, a tremendous amount of introspection. And I think there's two common laments that we usually feel in these moments. The first is this, I wish there was more. I wish there was more days. I wish there was more time. Life is just too short. You see, the search for immortality is as old as the human race. The Epic of Gilgamesh is one of the oldest recorded stories in humanity, and it's all about one guy's search for eternal life. We know that people have searched for the fountain of youth or the Holy Grail. Jeff Bezos keeps pouring billions of dollars into this startup called Altos Labs. It's all about anti-aging and reprogramming cells and mixing monkey embryos with human embryos. Because I believe Jeff Bezos wants to prolong life because he knows one lifetime isn't long enough to spend all the money that he has. And so he needs more life. And you can go online and you can find 50 ways that you can live longer. I read an article this past week, 40 foods to eat so that you'll live longer. And when I read through the list, I was like, if that's what it takes, I'm not so sure. But we have this lament, life is too short. And I think the second lament is a deeper one. I think it's far more internal. And it's this idea, does my life matter? Does it really matter? Have I lived a good life? Have I done anything of significance? right? What's the point? It's got to be more than just accumulating things and gaining acceptance from other people and trying to get other people to applaud us. Life's too short. Does my life matter? These are the laments we have when we stand at a funeral, when we are at the grave. And so how do we deal with that? How do we deal with death? Does it wreck us? In this story, Jesus was angry and he was sad and he spoke directly to death. And as a matter of fact, he spoke directly to these two laments and he offered hope. Jesus didn't just come in and offer consolation. He came and offered resurrection. He didn't just mourn death, he offered life because he offers us life after death and life before death. So I want to take just a minute and look at these two statements in this I am statement and you may look at those and you might think oh those are identical statements and Jesus is just repeating himself for effect but they're actually different statements. The first one, anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. This is about life after death. In verse 25, Jesus uses the word live to refer to resurrection life. For those who believe, who have put their faith in Jesus, even though they die and are buried, they will be resurrected to life. Despite our death, we are going to live. And so Jesus is speaking of the life to come. Death is not the end. We're going to one day leave the land of the dying and enter forever into the land of the living. And so as believers, we're not just riding off into the sunset, we're actually riding towards the sunrise. This is our hope. And Jesus knew this because he knew that he was going to die and defeat death. And this was the moment that caused that to happen here in the book of John. You see, the resurrection of Lazarus led to the death of Jesus. There were some in the crowd who were watching this and some who believed in Jesus and saw this as an amazing miracle. But there were some in the crowd who, when they saw this, ran straight to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and they were angry. And I can't even wrap my brain around what it is that they were angry about. But they ran to the Pharisees and they're like, you're not going to believe what this Jesus did. This guy was dead. And then he made him alive again. The nerve like, I, I, I want to know how that story played out, but it says later on in the story, from that moment on, they began to plot his death. And Jesus knew this. You see, the only way for Jesus to interrupt Lazarus's funeral was to cause his own. Jesus freed Lazarus from the grave by going to the grave. This resurrection of Lazarus would lead to the death and resurrection of Jesus, Right? The life of Lazarus is the death of Jesus, is the life for all of us. This was the beginning of Jesus defeating death. Charles Spurgeon, a famous pastor from the 1800s, had a great sermon on uh, the death of death. And he kind of paints this picture of Death, like, physically coming for Jesus. But when death came to Jesus, it tasted something that it had never tasted in someone before. It tasted innocence. Nobody had ever died as an innocent person except for Jesus. And so it drank in innocent blood. And later on, he preaches about how Jesus had life in and of himself, and nobody else ever had life in and of himself. And so he says, and death, finding that it had drunk into its own veins of life in the form of Jesus' blood, gave up the ghost, and death itself is dead. For Christ has destroyed it by the sacrifice of himself. Death is dead. That's good news. That is good news. Absolutely. And we want to celebrate that. We kind of hear that, and we're just like, yeah, yeah, death is dead. Our eternity is settled way more than we could have ever asked or imagined. But there's still more. You see, we aren't just supposed to have this experience where we're like, okay, yep, check the box, eternity settled. Have you ever had a layover in an airport, a long layover, not like a four to six hour, but like a 12 to 24 hour layover? Maybe in a big city, maybe in Europe, maybe a city you've never explored before. And you have this moment, this option, where you're like, I could leave the airport. I could risk it. I could go out there. I could see new things. I could take a chance. I could explore. It could be really cool. Or I could play it safe. And I could just stay at the airport. I could go in and out of the same three shops that sell the same things. I could eat subpar food. And then I could spend about eight hours sitting in a very uncomfortable chair in the departure area. Right? We sometimes think, well, I've got my ticket. I've got my final destination, so I'm just gonna hang out, play it safe in the departure area. But Jesus did not come and die so that we could just get that ticket. There's more. He came so that we could have more in this life, more life to our life, more purpose, more significance, more buoyancy, more power to live for him and his kingdom. You see, that's what that second statement is. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. This is life before death. It means we can truly and fully be alive right now. This isn't about having a resurrected body after death. It's about a life that starts now and never goes out. When we surrender, when we believe, as that verse says, we receive his Holy Spirit and we're renewed and changed and transformed and empowered And we desperately need that in this life as well. You see, death doesn't just wreck the end of our lives. Sin has left us for dead in this life. We can be selfish and dead to the needs of others. We can be merciless and dead to the feelings of others. We can be corrupt and dead to righteousness. We can be jaded and sarcastic and dead to joy. We can be hard-hearted and self-seeking and have purely selfish motives. And we can be dead in this life. But Christ came to give us life before death so that we could move from the stale air of the tomb to the fresh air of new life, from darkness and death to the light of the sun. The more in this life is found in Jesus, in living with him and for him, in furthering his kingdom... For many years now, we've taken students to Mexico over spring break to build houses for families that don't have them. And so one of these times we're busing back through California and we stop at in and out because that's in the youth pastor manual. If you're on a trip and you pass an in and out you have to stop. And so we stop at this in and out and we see that there's another church bus there. So we get our food and we sit down and there's a church group sitting right next to us. And we do that whole church group. Oh yeah, us too, spring break trip. Yeah, so one of our students says, hey, what did you guys do over spring break? And they go, it was awesome. We went to Disneyland for three days, six flags for a day and spent the rest of the time at the beach. It was amazing. And then they looked at our students and said, what did you guys do? And our students were like, well, we paid a lot of money so we could buy a whole bunch of housing supplies and and we built houses for homeless people in Mexico. Yeah, and that was the end of the conversation. (laughs) There's no coming back from that, right? We just went back to eating our food. But afterwards, as I debriefed with the students, we had such a significant time because they were so happy that they did something meaningful that their spring break mattered. And they used the phrase over and over again, I felt fully alive. I was fully alive when I was doing that. Church, what makes you fully alive? What makes us fully alive? Is it doing kingdom work for Jesus? You see, this resurrected life doesn't mean less suffering, but it does mean more purpose and more meaning. It's sacred and it's sacrificial. Jesus came to give, not to get, to sacrifice, not to store up. He has come so that we could have life after death and life before death. And he gives us this invitation, quite honestly, the same invitation that he gives Lazarus. Verse 43, then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. Augustine says that Jesus had to call out Lazarus by name, for if he hadn't, all the dead would have come out of their graves. That's the authority that he has. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. Jesus told them, Unwrap him and let him go. Some theologians also have wondered how it was that Lazarus came out if he was all wrapped up. Did he hop? Did he float? We don't know. That doesn't matter. He came out. And he came out alive. And Jesus makes a call to Lazarus and a call to us. Come forth and live. Come forth and live. Jesus is light in our darkness, freedom in our bondage, breath in our lungs when we have none. He's life in our death. And so he says, come forth and live. And those are the two things that we want to walk away with. Just two quick things. First is this. Live forever in God's kingdom. This is an invitation Maybe there's some in this place, maybe there's some in a house church that have yet to have their eternity established in Jesus, who have yet to surrender to him. This is that invitation. You can live forever in God's kingdom. But here's the thing, we can't achieve this on our own. Several months ago, I was hiking with my youngest daughter and we came upon this sign at the beginning of the trail. It said, flash floods and slippery rocks and swift currents and injury and death. And then at the bottom, it said, your safety depends upon your own good judgment. And I looked at her and I said, we're done. (laughs) I'm sorry. And she was like, Dad, I'm here, so we're going to be good. And I was like, you're right. We'll have your good judgment and not my own. If we rely on our own good judgment We're not going to make it. We can't earn our way there. We can't think our way there. We can't, oh, I'll just live a good enough life to get there. We must surrender. We must give our lives over to the one who already gave his life for us. He died the death we deserved to give us this life, eternal life, resurrected life. We can have a relationship with Jesus. Our eternity can be secure when we surrender to him. He said, if you believe in me, So we believe and we surrender and we have our eternity firmly established in him. And then I want you to think about the turn that this funeral made. The most amazing funeral turned party in the history of the world. Can you imagine the joy? Can you imagine the celebration? Can you imagine the shouting and the singing and the dancing? And scripture tells us that when one of us surrenders our life to Jesus, heaven throws the same kind of party. And so we can live forever in God's kingdom. And the second thing I would say is we can live right now for God's kingdom. We can live right now for God's kingdom. I was listening to a a sermon from a brilliant preacher a few weeks ago, and she said this. If God were to say yes to every prayer you've prayed in the past year, would your life be more comfortable or would God be more glorified? Yeah, and I said, ouch. Because my prayer life tells me what I want more of in this life. And it's not about my comfort, and it's all about His kingdom. The story in John 11 is bookended by the same verse, basically, that says this is for the glory of God. This is for the glory of God. It's all for the glory of God. It seems counterintuitive that we find more for ourselves in giving ourselves away, but it's true. It's all about His kingdom. Last week, we celebrated 100 years of kingdom work here at Salem Alliance. And to be honest with you, I'm very honored that I was chosen to kick off the next century of kingdom work here at Salem Alliance. Thank you so much. But someday, as I sat there, here's what I kept thinking someday, we will be the old pictures. Someday, people will look at us and laugh at what we were wearing. Someday people will look at us and wonder how it is that we got by with so little technology. They'll wonder what it was like way back in 2021. And then as I sat there, I thought, what stories are they going to tell about us? What are our stories going to be? What stories will they tell about the kingdom impact that we have had? What stories will they tell about how we made Salem a city at peace with God? How we sent people into the neighborhoods and the nations? You see, we've been given life after death and life before death. And will we use this life we've been given to impact others for Jesus? Before we close, I just want to let you know that we have people who always want to be here and pray with you. We'll have people on this side of the platform that would love to do that. And house churches, your leaders would love to pray with you. I also want to let you know that the cross is a space that you can come and process your questions about putting your faith in Jesus. Somebody will be there to talk with you. If your heart's beating a little bit faster, if you've never established your eternity, if you want to throw a party in heaven, today's your day. Would you stand with me and receive this as the benediction? Ephesians 5.14 says, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead. The word is resurrection, and Christ will give you light. He'll give you light so that you can be light. So may we not go through life as those who are asleep, but as those who are alive in Christ. May we increasingly move in the power of Holy Spirit and experience the freedom of resurrected life in Jesus. And as those who know our eternity is secure, may we have the courage and compassion to shine the light of Jesus to the world. Amen? Amen. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening to the Salem Alliance podcast. We hope you have been challenged and inspired. Salem Alliance is a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. To experience other messages and discover more about who we are, please visit SalemAlliance.org or download the Salem Alliance app. And again, thanks for listening.